How would you feel if the world turned against you? If you lost your hard-earned career, your reputation and everything that mattered in a second? If the world's media called you a liar, a fraud, a cheat? And if it was all because of something that you didn't even do? This is exactly what happened to Diane Medal, one of the most talented Olympic athletes this country has ever produced. Her story is heartbreaking, it's emotional, it's unjust, powerful, it's ultimately incredibly, incredibly inspiring. But she's so much more than just an ex-Olympic athlete. She's now an entrepreneur, she's a philanthropist, and despite everything that happened to her, she's just a really good human being. You really do have to hear this. Without further ado, this is The Diary of a CEO, and I'm Stephen Bartlett. I hope nobody is listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. My girlfriend's birthday was in July, right? I might have got that wrong. I'm really fucking shitting myself now. My girlfriend, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with it. Yeah, my go girlfriend's on. birthday was in July. And for her birthday, her present was a trip to Jamaica. And then a week after, I got an email through an inquiry and it said, um, we want you to come and speak in Jamaica. So I'm thinking, this is fucking perfect. Like, <laughs> because I hadn't booked it yet, right? Yeah. So, Have you told her this? Story. Is she aware she, that you didn't actually invest in the She present? is aware that she's going to Jamaica. No, I'm joking. No, <laughs> no she's aware. I said to her, I said, babe, I've just had this inquiry come through to speak in Jamaica, which is perfect. So should we go at that time? She was like, yeah, perfect. Amazing. Makes a lot of sense, right? And because she can, she can then come and see me speak as well. She's never really seen me speak yeah. before. So, How do um, you feel about that? About her listening to you and seeing you speak live? Um, it makes me want to make sure I do an even better job. It doesn't make me feel nervous. It makes me really want to make sure that I'm on my on my game. Yeah. And sometimes when I show up, I I don't prepare anything until I'm there. Yeah. So like I don't even know what I'm gonna say before I go on stage. But I've done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times that the minute I hit the stage, something just comes over me. It works out for me. Um, in this particular case, because she's there. I'll make sure I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> prepped, you know, yeah, I will, a little um, bit. My approach to that isn't because I'm lazy. It's because that's what works for me. And I actually think I'm better when I go in, I go up there and I just give it, I, I speak from like passion or what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that. <laughs> what about uh, you? Like, how do you, how do you prepare mentally for, you know, the Olympics? Like, how yes. Does... Yeah. Well, that's years of prep in mm -hmm. a way. But it, it's planted initially just from uh, the, the fact that you might have a dream. So in my case, mm. I was reasonably decent at running. I could run. Mm -hmm. I was rubbish at school. Mm -hmm. I was really poor. I was not academic at all. And uh, when everyone else was saying, oh, P.E., do we have to go outside? It's raining. Mm -hmm. I'd be the one changed, plimsolls on, shorts on, you know, T-shirt on, whatever we were wearing. And I'd be doing the hockey, uh, the high jump, the cross country. I wasn't good at all of those things. So, mm -hmm. um, Why? Why were you out there doing that? I enjoyed it. And you thought you were good at it? No. You didn't think you were good at it? Okay. No, I, I was having fun. And what did good look like at that stage? Because I wasn't always winning. Um, there were lots of people, you know, in, in school who were 
quicker than me, could jump higher than me. I couldn't hurdle. I was rubbish at things like that, trampolining. I mean, I can't even do a somersault, for goodness sake, but I would try because mm-hmm. it was fun. Yeah. It was good fun. So that Olympic dream was born out of, in many ways, just an opportunity to have fun and do something that, yeah, I, I was enjoying, I suppose. Mm-hmm. How does one prepare? Because I remember when I was younger, and this is a, something I've always tried to understand about myself, but the higher I got playing football, the more I didn't want to play. And I remember one day I got scouted to play for Devon in like Plymouth Argyle. And it was it was the day that I almost gave up sports. And that's strange because I, I'm not someone that's um, intimidated by um, pressure these days. But when I was 14 years old and I got scouted to play for this massive team, which is basically my county, and then had trials for England schoolboys, I didn't like football anymore. What and was I, that about? I don't know. I've always I've always reflected on it and thought, what was that? And I hope, and tried to make sure that that, whatever that was, doesn't show up in my life today. <laughs> yeah. So did you just stop enjoying it that day? Was there an element of pressure or do, expectation? Do you know what I think it? It might have been for me. And you never really know because you can only like, I'm only hypothesizing in hindsight. I think that the minute it became not just about the fun and it became this high pressure thing and I was the striker and I had these big expectations on me, it just felt like work. It felt like work. Yeah. I was the opposite. So the minute somebody said to me, if you knuckle down, if you work hard and your work ethic surpasses anything else that your potential tells me you've got, Mm. you could be pretty good at this. And that was, I suppose, the direction and focus I needed. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into arenas packed with 80,000 spectators, Mm. world championships, Olympic Games, European Championships, Commonwealth Games, and loving it. It Mm. was like I was walking into my living room yeah uh, the louder the crowd got uh the more pressure where i was expected to to win or do well i lapped that up i mm. loved it i loved it i do now i can't i've never got my head around why why i reacted in such a way so on that point how do you as an athlete show up every day because you know it's a similar sort of i guess dynamic or probably a similar concept to how as a business leader or as an ambitious person anybody with a goal in order to achieve that goal you 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 can't just show up at the olympic games you've got to show up every day before then and you've got to have the right mindset and you know we all feel like shit some days so how do you show up every day like what's the was there something that helped you two things the first is having a crystal clear goal and you said it there really having a defined reason a purpose uh, that you and that I was driven towards and wanting to make a difference is actually the catalyst that makes the whole difference. Uh, As an athlete, uh, a lot of us aspire to be the best in the world. That's finite. There's a ranking system. You can rank yourself against what other athletes in your distance are doing. So it allows you to measure yourself against that, that defined ranking, world ranking. In business, Without a goal, what are you striving for? So there's no difference whether it's uh, to uh, achieve a sustainable business model, whether it is to inspire a generation of young people to fulfill their own potential. The goal has to be really clear. And the second thing that I think drives me and drives the business forward is uh, actually the value, adding value Mm -hmm. um, to myself as an individual 
every single day because what we can lose and get wrapped up in is the bottom line, mm-hmm. the business, the next event, the next presentation, the next meeting. But actually at the heart of that is people and mm-hmm. is a person. So unless we are able to fill ourselves up and mm-hmm. add value to ourselves, read more, get out more, talk to people, learn and, and be prepared to absorb what we're, we're hearing, uh, you can have the best goal in the world, but it's not going to happen unless you are continually adding value to yourself. So a fairly famous entrepreneur once said to me, he gave me some advice and I wanted to get your take on this because you, you almost alluded to it then. He said to me, he said, Steve, make sure along the journey you really enjoy it because it'll be over before you know it. And I remember him saying that because I think at the time I was almost living in a constant state of like preparation, you know, preparing for something all the time. And I'd been running a business for four years. I'd gone through all the startup phase, the the business that I I run now. And when he said that, I realized that we hadn't really enjoyed it because you're always thinking about, as you said, then the next event. Do you regret or how, what's your thoughts when when I said that about enjoying every single day? Because, you know, you do all this preparation for years before to be at this Olympic Games and then it's over like this. How do you like be in the moment and enjoy it? And It's incredibly hard. Mm. Um, the nature of uh, a performer, somebody who is achieving or trying to achieve excellence and a culture of high performance means that you are constantly critical about how you are doing and what you are not doing. And it is difficult to then celebrate where you've had success. So, for example, um, on winning medals at championships, the first thing that athlete and coach often does is look at where you went wrong, where you lost that tenth of a second or why you didn't win gold. You you ended up winning silver Um, because the nature of trying to strive and be the best means you are looking for those marginal gains and that's where the attention goes so in many ways I've had to teach myself to reflect and to stop and to uh, look at actually how have you done Mm -hmm. and and how is it going Uh, and I've only really been able to do that as um, the business has reached a place where we are more stable. We haven't achieved a, a state of stability that we would like to, um, but it's inbuilt mm-hmm. in our culture in recognising and celebrating what we are doing. And, and one of the headlines that we are striving towards as a business is to celebrate our successes. Mm-hmm. And you, re- when you look back on the high performance elements of your career, do you, do you have regrets about not, not enjoying it more in the moment or being more in the moment? That's a really, really deep question. My They're head, all like this on this podcast. <laughs> my head goes straight away to um, things that I haven't been able to control. Mm-hmm. Um, I think m- my way of dealing with things is I am pretty much a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. I will give you the best that I have. In fact, I won't give you the best. I'll give you all. Because the best isn't really all you can give me, is it? If I say to you, give me how many press-ups do you think you can do? You'll say probably, yeah, I'll get to four. And I'll say, I bet you can get to five. And we'll have this debate. And I'll say, okay, let's do four. Let's wait a minute. Do four more. 
wait another minute, do another four. So I want all you can give me, mm -hmm. not just your best. So um, I know that on any occasion, I've given all I can, 100%. Mm -hmm. um, so my regrets have come from where I've sort of lost control of the situation. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and there, what I'm talking about is a, a really difficult period in my sporting career where um, uh, right at the peak of my performance, uh, I wasn't able to achieve what I was able to because I was pulled out of a race and... Um, For a doping allegation. The, yeah. Yeah. You it's, can talk about that story because I think it's super important because these are the um, the uncontrollable um moments of like bullshit or suffering that one could never plan for one one had no control over that i think show up in all of our lives at some point and the the like as the saying goes we can do very little about the it showing up but the only part we have control over is how we handle it and that's like synonymous in everyone's life i was, I was actually looking at this um scatter graph at 3 a.m last night and it was about suffering and the nature of suffering and how it's it, how it's distributed and let's say there's a civilization of a hundred people and there's a hundred moments of suffering they continually put them on this graph right at randomly using this computer and it shows that um Virtually everyone has a chance of something really unfortunate happening just by random in their life if there's 100 points of suffering. In fact, suffering, when it's randomized, also means that some people get four points of suffering, some get none. And so it made me think, I was looking at this graph of 100 pieces of suffering and 100 people, and it randomized onto this graph. And there's only like three people out of 100 that get through life with no major events of suffering. You could, one could arrive at the fact that 97% of us are going to go through a moment like that which is out of our control, which we just have to fucking deal with, right? Yes, yes. And so how did you deal with that? And can you tell that story? Like the Wow, that's fascinating. I've never actually asked the question, why me? Why did this happen to me? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you know, what you've just said almost answers that question. We don't mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. It was relatively random. Um, in 1994, I was at the Commonwealth Games in Victoria, Canada, uh, I was there to defend my Commonwealth Games title. I'd won gold four years before and I was in the best shape of my life. Mm -hmm. The morning of the race arrived, beautiful morning, the kind of morning every athlete prays for. It was still, so no wind, great for breaking records. The sun was shining and um, I woke up on that morning, left left the Commonwealth Games Village to do what I would do on any typical race day and started a warm-up, um, run a couple of miles, do some drills mm -hmm. and some stretching and then some run-throughs where I'm testing my legs and making sure that uh, the energy is there, the pace and the rhythm is there. Oh, I was so excited to get started. And on my way back into the, the village, I was stopped by a team official Susan Deves. I'd known Susan since I was 15 years old uh, through coming through international competition. She'd been a team official for a long, long time. Somebody I knew well and I trusted. And Susan said to me, Di, I need to have a word with you. Have you got a couple of minutes? And my natural response was, actually, I don't. Um, I'm preparing for my race. I've got a couple of hours and I need to go back to my room shower, eat, and start to, to mentally focus and prepare. And Susan said to me, I actually do need to have a word with you. Can you come into my room? And 
typical athlete mode. I'm on this tunnel vision now, got to prepare, I've got a title to defend. And it wasn't until she forcibly encouraged me into her room that um, I realised, okay, I'll give her the minutes that she needs and then I'm off. And then she did something really bizarre, which on reflection now was so beautiful, actually. She took hold of my hands and she looked directly into my eyes and she said, Diane, a drug test you gave nine weeks ago has tested positive. I'm stood in this room uh, in a village and she said, I said actually to her, you've made a mistake. I need to get back to my room and prepare for my race. And it wasn't until Susan said, no, Diane, I have to pull you out, that I realised it wasn't a mistake. She was talking to me and this was real. But to be fair, I don't remember too much of what happened after that. I do remember waking up on the floor with Sue, this team official, looking over me, smacking my face, saying, breathe, Diane, breathe, you must breathe. And I looked up at her thinking, what is she talking about? Why is she telling me to breathe? Um, the room then became packed with doctors and nurses. They were so concerned about my health. Apparently, I had passed out. I was unconscious for some minutes. And very quickly, I was sedated with Valium. I was put on a plane with a nurse and arrived in Heathrow and that was the day my life changed forever. And what, what happened from then? You land back in Heathrow and your, your head's full of thoughts and, you know, imagine a fucking immense range of emotions. On the journey back from Canada to uh, London, I couldn't speak. I wanted to speak. I wanted to shout out loud and say, what the heck is going on? And I just couldn't, I just could not articulate any words. So I started to write how scared I was, how desperate I was, I was totally out of control. And when the plane landed, everyone else was allowed to leave the plane and myself and the nurse were asked to stay on. And a security guard came on and he said, look, love, there's press everywhere on the tarmac and um, it's not going to be easy for you. Uh, apparently the story had broken. I was not aware of this, but on the flight home, the story had broken in the national press. And he said to me, do you want a blanket to cover your face? And I am so relieved that despite being sedated, I had the strength to, to turn to this official and say, no. I don't want to cover my face. I've done nothing wrong. And these plans were being hatched. How are we going to get her off the plane to protect her, to take care of her, her health and her security? And they decided to take me off at the back of the plane where food is normally transported up on a little conveyor belt or a lift type thing. So myself and the nurse were ushered off at the back of the plane. And in a way, that was a mistake because we were then... Uh, fortune to the media because we were at the mercy of being lowered down on this extremely yeah, slow lift and all the press were just taking as many pictures um, as they could. I was put in an ambulance. There was an ambulance waiting for us on the tarmac and we arrived at a hospital in London. I stepped out of the ambulance. The ambulance door closed and on the other side of the door was my husband 
with a bunch of roses. <laughs> Christ, typical man thinking that. How ridiculously <laughs> beautiful at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Because that just normalised the trauma mm -hmm. I was going through. And what that said to me was, we don't know what's going on, but I love you mm -hmm. and we're going to get through this. He didn't say that, but just seeing him and that action gave me some strength. And literally overnight, we had to become experts, scientific experts, legal experts in trying to understand what happened to that sample. Mm -hmm. And we were able to bring on the best experts from all over the world, actually, America and uh, London, the best barristers. And what happened to my sample after doing a race in Portugal nine weeks uh, prior to being told I had apparently cheated was the sample was left on a windowsill at the peak of the summer uh, in July uh, and it had given rise to bacteria. Mm -hmm. The temperatures at the time were 72 degrees. It was on the windowsill for 48 hours and that's all we had to go with that the sample that I gave was no longer the same sample that was now being tested in the laboratory. But at that time, there was no evidence to back up or to prove that a degraded sample would give rise to a false positive result. So we went to the hearing in December, having been sent home in August, and told we, we lost the hearing. We lost based on uh, there was no evidence to, to back up that theory. You go away, you prove that a degraded sample can give rise to a false positive, and then we'll, we'll talk again. Of course, we appealed. So we had uh, a number of months to go out and prove that theory. When you are innocent and truth is on your side, you will do anything to get to the truth. And that's exactly what we did. So with our experts, we took two random samples um, an international tennis player and an international marathon runner. And we were able to replicate knowing what happened to my sample when it left me and, and ended up in the laboratory, where it travelled, how it travelled, how long it was left on the windowsill for, the temperature at that time. We replicated everything and allowed those two random samples to degrade, to become contaminated with bacteria. And guess what happened? Both those samples tested positive for testosterone. We went back into court and we won on appeal. Um, but in many ways, that's where the journey just started. It wasn't a victory. It wasn't one of those punch your fist in the air moments at all. By then, I'd lost my livelihood, my reputation, my confidence, everything Every mile I had run, every weight I had pushed, every squat I did, I was told was a lie. Didn't happen. You cheated. Mm -hmm. It was a hollow victory and uh, sport for me was no longer a place where I felt at home. And did you, did you stay within sport much longer than that after that moment? Ironically, as much as I hated sport... And what it had done to me, I'd been a kind advocate at that stage for almost 18 years, and this is how it treated me. The way I got through it was by running. Mm. I ran myself into the ground. Um, to my detriment, I became poorly just running, running and pushing. Uh, and 
what my coach, who, who was also my husband at the time, realised was the only way, besides the evidence and being exonerated and cleared, the only way I would restore at least some of my reputation was to get back on track and do what I do best and start winning again. And I had four years from being sent home to try and regain the gold medal that I, I should have won. Um, in fact, I did come back. I won a bronze medal behind the Olympic champion, um, Maria Matola. But that bronze medal, Stephen, was worth 10 times more than the gold medal I had won and the Commonwealth Games record I had broken uh, back in 1990. And although it was hard fought and won that bronze medal, it was more than that. Mm -hmm. It was, in effect, two fingers up to the authorities to say, you know, fuck you, mm -hmm. you got it wrong. And when you reflect and uh, over that whole journey, which is just this tremendous injustice, how do you come out the other side not being full of resentment for that process, those people that were involved, you know, the, the, the lady that called you into the room to break the news to you. How do you emerge from that without resentment or do you? Because, you know, when I asked you the question, when you started talking about the subject, I could tell that you didn't want to talk about it. You're right. Because you didn't want to go, you didn't want to open that, that box again. And I was wondering why you didn't want to talk about it. And that for me maybe says that there's, the, the analysis that I was playing out in my head is that even though, this isn't like a total, like just me guessing, even though everyone knows that it was an injustice, there's not a person on planet Earth that doesn't, right? In my mind anyway, right? It's obvious, right? But even having to say, tell the story feels somewhat like shameful in some respect. And, and that's, that was one element of it. But then uh, the other sort of hypothesis I had was that it unlocks a bunch of negative emotions that you don't really want to unlock all the time. It makes me feel sad. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel sad. And that is an emotion that I don't want to stay around. Because I remember we always have a choice. I choose to be happy. I choose to be ambitious. I want to be challenged. I want you to tell me how it is because I can take the truth. Mm -hmm. But that element right there, I can't control because it's an emotion that takes me to a place that you're absolutely right there's no doubt about it that I was robbed of a, a retirement that should be a positive reflection on being a, a, a loyal servant to sport. And I think resentment, regret, no. But we were never, ever uh, given the justice we deserved. Uh, we never received a full apology. We never receive compensation. And my husband and I, who was my coach at the time and also guilty by association, we never ever fully returned to a reputation of winners. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes me feel sad. And talking about it also reminds me that the hope is dying forever receiving the compensation that we deserved and hope is the last thing you ever want to lose. Mm -hmm. Have you forgiven the situation? No. Have you forgiven the people involved in the situation? No. And I never will. Really? Never. Does it not? Does it feel like you're holding onto like a, 
a very heavy load that you don't like a load that you don't want to carry like cuz i remember that someone said to me one day they said you know when you when you forgive a situation it's like letting a prisoner go but then realizing in some respects that you were the prisoner the whole time and when they said that to me i, I reflected on the the little grudges that i have my ex girlfriend all the you know all oh, these yeah. little things and i just thought you know what none of none of this is at this stage in my life serving me positively anymore because it's making me live with at certain moments feelings of you know negativity so i've always and again i'm just i'm trying to understand because i'm there's there's nothing that's there's a couple of things that have happened to me there i remember one particular day driving to work and someone hacked our emails i think it was an ex employee emailed all of our clients as i'm driving to work really abusive stuff from my business partner's email pretending to be them so i get to work that day and there's 70 people in the office and they've all lost their clients and the clients are calling me telling me i'm a coward and that it was my business partner and all these horrible things and that felt like a moment of injustice because we'd done nothing wrong i just went to sleep and 20 of my clients had now insulting me telling me that i'm this and that and the other and um i i think it's different to your situation it doesn't even compare to, if i'm completely honest it doesn't compare but um at some point i realized that i was going to lose again i was going to take a second l a voluntary l if i didn't let that go and that's the way i looked at it i was like i've taken the first involuntary l right but the second l is my choice like the second loss is my choice and i just i just don't want that person to win again i don't want that situation to win over me again and i don't want it to win over me every day for sure yeah. you know i am flying i have found my life's purpose i know that where i am right now is where i am supposed to be i am giving my all in this second in this moment on this day what happened to me almost 25 years ago does not influence where i am headed but emotionally deep down i refuse to quit and accept mm-hmm. second best mm-hmm. i am worth so much more than that mm-hmm. but more importantly so is my husband and my family who lived through this tragedy mm-hmm. so part of me feels if i say die box it it's done mm. move on i am quitting mm-hmm. i hear that. and i'm not going to quit if there is hope i will continue to write letters to sebco mm-hmm. i will continue to be brave enough to stick my head up and say to the international athletic federation it was wrong that what happened to me and to us and history is important mm-hmm. history is important and until we put right what was done so terribly wrong how can we have faith in the system moving forward mm-hmm. so i see it as a duty almost to continue to be the thorn in the side of the authorities if i never get compensation i will accept with accept that i will live with that my husband won't he'll have you know a different view on it <laughs> however it's deeper than that because this case what happened to me my husband and my family never happened prior i was the first british athlete to to test pos- positive and to overthrow the 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 verdict and it's important that we protect innocent athletes and there is no guarantee that this couldn't happen again mm-hmm. it's a unbelievable story and it's incredible that you had the resolve not to um to fold and accept it because i think a lot of people would have probably tried just to run into their shell that the the thought that you could overcome such a thing 
I'm sure no, there's no force involved in that situation that wanted you to be able to prove that there's errors in the system. So that's it's it's a fascinating story. And I, I when you said it, I just thought, fuck me, that that in a in a in a way that I, I think a lot of people won't appreciate. It gives you a tremendous power to talk about overcoming injustice as well and being a real, as you say, like a spokesman for not just that particular situation, but more broadly. Because we know that injustice and suffering is going to fall, as I said, randomly on all of us at some point. And it's really like the, as I said, the reaction piece is the bit that I think is within our control. But listen, changing subject, the podcast sponsor, which is Boost by Facebook. They are a dedicated one-stop shop for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, for small businesses, job seekers, and anybody with ambition that's looking to thrive in this digital economy. They launched with the aim of creating a place where all of us can understand this new world of digital and social. It can be incredibly intimidating. My mum, I was talking to her about Boost with Facebook the other day. She doesn't know how to use a phone. She doesn't know how to type, and she's trying to run a business in 2020 and compete against people that do. Boost is a place for people like her where she can learn more about the digital economy, about features and skills and training and all of the things that matter, the things that might level the playing field for her as someone that doesn't know about this new world that we live in. You can learn more about this at facebook.com slash boost with Facebook UK. Um, and if you do check it out, drop me a message and let me know how you find it. I always pop on there every now and then to, to, to try and make sure I'm staying ahead of the curve. But yeah, do let me know how you find it. A question I get asked all the time, all the time, which I think is a fundamental misconception, but I want to ask you the question and just see how you react. Um, I'm thinking, and it's a very difficult question to answer because I don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be motivated today. I'm going to motivate the team. I'm motivated because... I want to be here. Mm-hmm. I love what I do. I want to challenge myself more to be better than I am. Mm-hmm. It's almost innate. I can it by what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing and, and the individuals I'm around. But motivation for me is about um, who I am and what mm-hmm. I want to achieve. And it comes back to what's your purpose? Mm-hmm. Why are you here? What's your why? And... It's about goals. Without a goal, where are you headed? Mm-hmm. So my, I stay motivated by challenging myself, by adding value to myself daily, by um, you know asking people, how am I doing? What's my experience been like with you recently? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking to, to fill up my own reservoir so I can be better every day. And, and do you ever have days where you're not motivated? I have days where I'm tired <laughs> and I have days where I think, flipping heck, why has why is it so difficult? Mm-hmm. Why can't that just be done? We've spoken about that or that's sure. happened. But um, I don't have days where I think I can't be bothered mm-hmm. or I can't be bothered to get out of bed today. Mm-hmm. I want to get out of bed. Wow, have you looked outside lately? It's awesome out there. It's you raining. Know, it's raining. Yeah, I've got it's always cold and raining a couple of umbrellas. But um, that I suppose for me, much to the annoyance of people I am around, um, I come from uh, a family of people who have worked hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. You know, my mum and dad left everything behind in Jamaica 
like most immigrants, to make a better life for themselves here in England. And they landed in flipping sunny Mosside, you know? <laughs> so what I'm saying is just witnessing work ethic and being around individuals who want to make a better life for themselves has, has somehow shaped who I am. And they are my guiding principles. Uh, when I'm having a down day or a low day, I just think about the hardships, the difficulties that they would have had to overcome. And my parents are two amazing people. Do you think there are disadvantages, like tangible disadvantages or tangible obstacles being a uh, a black woman in business? And what are those obstacles and disadvantages? Because, you know, a lot of people <clears throat> talk about these disadvantages. Um, they talk about disadvantages being a mi- like from coming from a min- minority background. I think there's even grants that the government have put in place to try and accelerate minorities into business. But then also there's this huge conversation around women in business and leadership roles and these kinds of things. So what has your experience been about... Uh, about as as it relates to your foundation and your businesses and and your your ability to um, progress based on who you are, I think disadvantage comes in many different guises, and I I do not dispute for a second that there is subconscious or institutionalized racism that exists in business in in all of us in right? all of us right. absolutely. And that will have a direct knock-on effect on the opportunities that are available for men, for women, for disadvantaged young people. And part of me feels and agrees with the fact that we should have positive discrimination if over the amount of time that we have tried and failed to encourage more women uh, into boardrooms, into uh, strategic positions. Part of me agrees with that, but... um, I don't. It's weird. It's always made me feel really uncomfortable. I've never... uh, You know, I did a Facebook post maybe seven years ago. Bear in mind, seven years ago, I was broke, right? So I didn't do it from my fucking crystal, you know, diamond tower in the sky, right? I did this Facebook post saying, when I heard about this grant for young um, minorities, I thought, well, that's racist. Yeah. And I thought, we're, we're not trying to make a... That's the, the racism we're trying to fight. Like, level the playing field. How do we level the playing field? So I, I guess it's yeah. um, a quality of opportunity. Correct. And that's where the disadvantage sits. So I don't think any of us, whether whichever um, marginalised group you sit in, want a hand out. What we want is a hand up. And in order to get that hand up, um, if society and the uh, stereotypes and that uh, um, institutionalised racism exist, you're never really going to get a hand up, not through will of trying, just through circumstance. So if one of the ways to do that, provided you can do the job, you've got the skills, your values align and the behaviours are there to be able to do the job, then I think a hand up is essential. It's essential because in my line of work, uh, we work within the top 20% areas of deprivation, working with uh, young people who are desperate for an opportunity to be seen and to be heard, to become the best that they can be. And we all know that Manchester is a great place to live. 
it's vibrant, it's thriving. And in fact, I think it's ranked as one of the best places to live. But there are 34 wards in Manchester. 29 of them are the most deprived in the UK. We are ranked fifth worst in terms of income deprivation. So as a young person growing up in this city and you might be living in a chaotic lifestyle, let's say, where is the opportunity for you going to come from? More importantly, where are you going to find the confidence to put yourself forward in the first place uh, to be able to access some of the opportunities? So, um, What's the bigger issue there, the opportunity or the self-belief? Two go hand in hand. Okay. Because often what needs to happen is you need someone to say, I see a spark in you. If you work hard, if you listen, if you're on time when I come and knock on this door to take you to training, I can help you fulfill your potential. And those small steps then enable that individual to build and grow their confidence. But if you're at home and somebody's saying, clean your room, where's your tie? You were late today, you've got another detention. It will slowly suffocate the potential ambition that you have in here. So um, you need someone to say, how are you doing? That was a brilliant assignment that you handed in. You were late, but I need to see you uh, on time next time. So you need that sort of encouragement. And once that exists, it provides a strong platform then for a relationship to develop, for trust to grow. And then that's when the behavior change starts and the character development starts. So you need to. You need the two things. You need someone to believe in you initially and someone to be prepared to go on this sort of twisting, winding journey as the emotions ebb and flow. And, and this is a lot of the work you're doing with your foundation at, at the moment, the, the Diane Madal Foundation, right? Yes, we, we set up for, for one reason and one reason only. My husband and I established the, the charity in 2010. This is our 10th anniversary year. and We're very excited about that. Thank you. Talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So the, the mission, our drive in terms of the foundation is to open more doors, to create more opportunities, to say to young people, um, nothing in life is free. If your ambition is to be the next Usain Bolt, we will go on a journey with you on that. If you want to be the next Dame Kelly Holmes, let's make that happen. Let's help you map out a plan so that you can achieve that. If you want to be the next entrepreneur with the next new idea, let's be an enabler to, to fill in some of the gaps that, that, that uh, need filling in order for that journey to happen. So our work is very much about um, developing character, and establishing the right positive behavior habits that will enable young people to be absolutely world-class athletes, but world-class citizens that are able to give back to society, give back to the economy, and uh, to be amazing people. You said you have kids come to you with these big ambitions, right? This might not be the easiest question to answer. So if, a, if someone comes to you, and this has happened to me, it happens to me quite often, and they say, I want to be Elon Musk. I want to do, you know, this hugely just ambitious things, yeah, right? Yeah. But you can see the gap between where they are 
and there. And this kind of goes against everything because it, you know, the narrative typically when you're trying to inspire people is letting them know that they can do anything and that yeah, they're completely yeah. capable. But you can see that their ambition is probably, and this is even hard for me to say as someone that just believes I could go to the moon, right? Yes. It's probably not realistic. And I hate that word realistic. Yeah. But I've had people come to me, um, a one particular guy I can think of that messages me a lot on Facebook and he doesn't have the self-awareness or or any experience whatsoever. And he's telling me he's trying to raise 50 million for a backpack that just has a um, high visibility strip on the back of it. He he's so he really is unself-aware. And he, he's never been an entrepreneur before, but he messages me religiously on Facebook saying, I've got this high-vis backpack with a high-vis strip on it. I'm trying to raise 50 million. And he sends me this picture of a drawing he's done. In that situation where you look at someone's ambition and you think... It's, how do I give because the thing is yeah. that that person has been conditioned by people like me <laughs> to, to not give up yeah to not give up so I'll, I I remember Sorry. the day I messaged him and went Brett listen bro listen and he goes Steve you didn't give up and I'm not going yeah, to have fuck's sake right. you have to so what do you do to. what do you do um, I think this is a conversation that I'm actually having at the moment with my team in terms of managing expectations for some of our young people but in many ways it is not the goal that is important it's not the goal it's the person he is becoming in pursuit of that goal so it's right that you myself and others who get approached all the time um how do i become you know the next usain bolt to encourage that and it is a process and it is a journey. This trust uh, that inevitably builds because of the communication that's happening is really important, but it's not on your terms. If we can't fund something or uh, if somebody isn't uh, able to get into a competition because they're not at that level, that doesn't matter. We have to be honest with that and say, you're not quite ready yet or I can't afford to fund that, but you know, keep seeking, keep pushing. Um, so being truthful, acting with integrity and being honest is really important. But the goal is important to have because that is what is allowing individuals to get out of bed in the morning. It might be their one thing, that purpose, uh, despite everything else that is going on. But um, it's the person that mm. the individuals are becoming that is more important than anything else. I never won a gold medal at the Olympic Games, but my 11-year-old self wanted to. Mm -hmm. It was what kept me going. Um, and on that journey, I'm now sitting in front yeah. of you having this conversation. Yeah. I, and I can, you know, I've, I never was able to articulate it in such a way, but that's, I think there's, tr I completely agree. There's tremendous truth in that, that um, the, going on that journey even like when i think about my first business wall park which i started from moss side by the way yeah failed right really badly um God. and uh i ended up leaving after about three years and they tried to carry on without me whatever but um i learned so much from it about social media in particular and, and it got me really interested in social media i actually started building these social media pages that this company owns now when i was there the week before I left, I actually started Social Chain. We were sat in a, a small room across the street from where we are now, maybe like 200 meters away. And I said to a couple of my, this was maybe seven, eight years ago, Social Chain's only five years old. I said to a couple of my friends, let's think of a name for this thing with these social media pages and these, these posts yeah. we do on them. And we came up with the name Social Chain. 
Um, and then for the next two years, we never said the word again. We never said the name again, never touched it again. So two years passes and I say, do you know what? Let's, um, let's, let's give that business a go. And here we are. Okay. And this is that business. And it would never have happened had I not failed because, and that's what I always reflect on when sometimes yeah. these entrepreneurs come to me and it's so clear to me that the idea is so fundamentally flawed. Mm. I remember a guy told, telling me that Wallpark was flawed but I'm really fucking glad I didn't stop. Yeah. Even though it ended in failure. Yeah. Because it, it it's 100% what took me. This is basically that business. Yes. Right? It's yeah. just a, it's got a different face on it and a different name. Yeah. Um. So. It's a tough It's, it's a, a tough, tough one. one. It's very tough. Because you don't want someone to waste their life and time. And yeah. You want to save them from. I agree. And you're conscious of that relationship that you've built. They're looking to you to mm. almost make that happen. I can't lie either. I can't say to them, oh, I love the backpack. I say, I hate a bad idea. And I say that because I say it in a constructive way and I try yeah. and explain to them, 99% of the time, no one's going to understand because you you have to be deluded sometimes to win. Yes. And you have to be I deluded. Like you have to believe your own bullshit to a healthy extent to get past all the cynics, the critics, the barriers, the yeah, yeah. the, the stats, for you know, the stats that say you're probably going to fail. So you have to have this healthy level of delusion and bullsh bullshit believing or whatever. But... They very rarely listen. It, t it usually comes like, two years after they'll message me, oh, by the way, you, the Hivers backpack, yeah, not the great, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so when you when you look forward, what is it that you want to accomplish in the next phase of your of your career? What are the, the, the goals you've set for yourself? I'm acutely aware that I am underperforming right now. In what respect? I think with the skills and the knowledge and the drive that I have, I think there is more to achieve. Have you ever felt otherwise? <laughs> um, actually, yeah. I, I can only say that based on what I have achieved mm. already. Um, and so where I am now, um, I think uh, in, in my mind, what I'd like to do more of is use the knowledge to be able to, to support other businesses um, to shape their agenda, uh, particularly around uh, disadvantage, um, socioeconomic disadvantage, and to be able to shape some of those uh, national governing bodies that have the power and the influence to look at things differently. Uh, I think some of that work is, is already happening, but uh, what I'm saying is that I think boards now uh, is, is what is driving me to get on boards, to be able to shape the agenda, but with a special or specific agenda in mind, uh, which is about changing the landscape of, of how we interact with uh, people who are coming from inner cities. Um, I also uh, want to be able to, I suppose I was going to say from a family point of view, um, just be there for my family. Uh, I always think that actually, uh, because I'm so committed to the success of, of the business, uh, that balance is, is, is often difficult. But um, so for me, it's, it's about deliberately being able to, to get the balance right from being, you know, a, a good family uh, person as well as being a, a decent businesswoman. Have you got the balance right? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So we've got three girls and um, um, yeah, I, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Do you believe you'll ever get there? With the balance. That's a good point. Do you honestly believe you'll ever get there? Probably not. 
because I think at some point I'll stop being a mom and I'll start being a manager because the 12 and 13 year old at the moment need a mom mm -hmm. and they want me home in the evening, you know, being there. And I want to be there too. But at some point they're going to say, oh, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> we don't want you around kind of thing. So I suspect that, that it's it's probably where it should be and, and how it should be right now. And uh, yeah, we, we are getting there, but whether we'll get there in terms of what that total balance looks like, probably not. And um, if, you, if you were to sort of, uh, this is a slightly obscure question. And I always ask this question on this podcast. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'd say about 35% of the time I do. Um, are you scared of dying? No. Why? I'm more concerned with living. Mm. Right now I'm alive. And I want to give every ounce of what I have to give whilst I'm alive. Um, I am going to die and... That's going to happen, but it's that element of control and that's the part that I can't. I'm not afraid of of dying. I don't want to be um, in terrible pain mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> when and uh, that time comes, but I'm more concerned with living and I'm happy to be alive. There's so much more to achieve. Um, and, you know, we talked about what does the next uh, few years look like for me? Um, and that underperformance, the thing that is at the forefront of my mind is sustainability for the business. We're good at what we do in the sense of supporting young people to fulfill their potential. But my job as the CEO is all encompassing and I take that responsibility really seriously. And that's my priority right now. And I'm really driven to be able to uh, connect with more people network with uh, more individuals that will enable me to achieve my goal, which in effect will positively affect the lives of, of, of young people. If someone's listening to this now and they want to they want to get sort of get involved in your journey and get involved in your foundation and your businesses, how can they? What's the, the best way for someone to do that? Talk, I know I'm getting involved yeah. to some to some degree. I'd, yes. I'd love to get in, involved even more. But, Thank um, you. But how could, how could someone get involved and help? Yes. That situation? Well, Obviously, get in touch uh, with me, my team via the, the website. Um, we are launching our ambassador program in our 10th year uh, anniversary. We are seeking 10 ambassadors from various elements uh, to raise £10,000 each uh, for us to uh, ultimately raise £100,000 to change the lives of those young people. So we are looking for group ambassadors, so people who want to get together and do fundraising initiatives, sports ambassadors, brand ambassadors and community ambassadors. And we're looking for 10 ambassadors in our 10th anniversary year to raise £10,000 to help us change lives. Come on board. You will have so much fun with us. We understand that we're in the business of entertainment, sport uh, as a catalyst for change, uh, forces and emotion whether your team wins or loses or you get a PB or something amazing happens, you feel something. And as an organisation, we understand that clearly. So our team want to be engaged 
and have fun and be entertained. So anybody on our team will be having so much fun, but also making a huge impact to the lives of young people across this city. I'll be an ambassador. Yes. There you go. Oh, ten grand. We like that. That's expensive sentence. <laughs> yeah. No, but I know I know Thank the call as well, and I know the the work you do, and I know the the, <laughs> the where it comes from. So, um, I'd love to be. I'd lo- I think that'd be awesome, and um, I hope anybody listening to this might be keen to join me on that. And I know a couple of people who I think, um, who could also be great ambassadors. So yeah, uh, for sure. Thank you. No worries. Thank um, you. No worries. Um, so last question then, a question I always ask on this podcast hypothetical dinner party there's six seats i'm in one of them you're in the other you get to invite four friends people they don't have to be friends you can have never met them before just four people um dead or alive who who do you invite and why and what are the names that just spring to mind four people Mm -hmm. martin luther king do Mm. i have to say why I mean, not to me. Not to <laughs> With, you. Like, not for Martin Luther King, but I mean, yeah. for maybe for other people, maybe. Yeah, but it might not be for the reasons that are obvious. Mm. I would ask the most ridiculous question, really? you know, what motivated him? What kept mm. him going? Because obviously his life was at risk every single day, but he kept going. It's the exact same reason. You know, I, I, I always give Martin Luther King his answer because I, he's someone that dawns on, he knew he was going to die. There's this particular speech he does where he says to this audience of people that like a couple of days before he gets shot dead, he says to them, "Um, I've been to the mountaintop and I don't get there with you. And he points to all the audience. He says, you get there, though. And he goes, I don't get there with you. And he goes, but you don't need me now. And then after he bursts into tears and his team like catch him and he got shot dead a couple of days later. And it's the closest I've ever come to believing that maybe there is uh, like a God or something because he knew he was going to die and he was willing to. And when I think about greatness, I think anybody that's willing to sacrifice their life for such a, for a cause, I'm like, would I be willing to do that? Mm. You know? It's a tough question. During that time, I often ask myself this question, would I be on the streets marching? Would exactly. I have been on the streets, you know, putting my life at risk? Or would I be at home watching from afar thinking, you know, come on, you can do this. Can you imagine the choices people would have had to make it's incredibly difficult do you know what i say to myself i do the exact same thing i say well you know would i have been out there would i have had the courage to do what he did yeah the answer is almost certainly no but i then reflect i say to myself steve you could do that now you could do that now you could be in service of of, you know there's tremendous injustices in in the world there's parts of the world where people are being stoned to death because they're homosexual or this i was like you could fight for causes now and you're not like i agree with that in this i'm not saying i'm not but i could commit Mm. my full self in the same way he did now i agree with that and potentially the reason why (laughs) we could have marched then is because the same inequalities don't exist so it didn't potentially in my mind i'm thinking maybe you know as you've just described, when something is Climate. absolutely important to you, Do you know what I mean. You're right. prepared, yeah. Something I dwell on a lot, you know. Oh yes. And I also, I also, the, one of the the things that makes me feel at slight peace with that is some of the the Buddhist mentors and stuff that I've spoken to talk to me about how something you described where you can't pour out anything unless you're full, unless yeah. your reservoir's full. And I've always, I've always played with this idea of like making yourself wealthy and is that a good thing, a morally good thing, or whatever. But um, all of my mentors have told me that yeah. you know. When, once you've created abundance within yourself, you have abundance to give. Yes. And as an 18 year old kid in Mossad, I used to say, I remember posting my Facebook that, and having this conversation with myself that if I stopped Wall Park now, 
I could go and save at least one kid's life. And would that be a much greater achievement than growing a business for myself? Mm. The thing that I've definitely learned to be true is because I focused on myself a little bit in that moment and got myself to this position, the 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 abilities that I have now to achieve that same objective have been multiplied by thousands, right? Yeah. And that's something that I've, I've always the contended with. The only thing that you can change or we can change is you. Mm. And ultimately on accepting that and making a positive change, we tend to pay it forward because we remember people along the way who was with us mm -hmm. on that experience. Definitely. And um, we only need to touch one life because they will pay it forward mm -hmm. um, if we are kind and, and generous. Um, I would also have The Rock. Well, why? You need to ask. Dwayne, Dwayne, well, I got Martin Luther King. I'm like... <laughs> He like his... He's a brilliant actor. So I think he will be around the table. You fancy him? Um, You're married, Diane, I wouldn't. <laughs> well, that's why I can say that, because I am married, okay. very happily married. Okay. Um, I would have... Um, I'm torn between Kevin Hart and Will Smith. Mm -hmm. I think I'll go for... Kevin or Will? Will. Nice choice, I would I'll said. go for Will. And I have one more... Do you know, I'd like to get into the mindset of Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson, interesting. Yeah. So Michael Johnson, American 400-meter sprinter. Mm -hmm, I remember him. Double world, or, you know, multi-world record holder. Presenter now. Yeah, right. but I'm not going to say Michael uh, because that's, the table is... No, you've said it now. <laughs> I've said it. Yeah, that's interesting. Why Why him, of all other, out of all the athletes that you you know and have worked with and have seen, why him? His mindset. It's, it's more than sport with him. He taps into what we all need in life, which is an attitude of, I get how life works and I'm going to play it in my favour. Mm. So I will be looking to him to steady us down because okay. we're all a bit giddy mm -hmm. um, around the table. But um, that's bad. There's me and those and, and you guys. It's it's not good. It's not a good table. It's going to be boring. It's interesting, really interesting. I always find that like um, the table almost reflects the person in some respects, yeah. or at least the, the person's aspirations. It's the same with I. I noticed one day I bought all this art for my house. I bought eight <laughs> world leaders, and I unboxed all the portraits. And someone said to me, they were like, seven of them are, uh, are male and six of them are black. And I thought, oh fuck yeah, shit. And, it, and it's because, as is yeah. the case for everybody, you, you have role models that yes. you can almost see yourself becoming. And so if you were to ask, you know, you know, I, I would assume that the majority of the, the inspiring role models for, for young women are also successful women in the same way yeah. that a lot of the people that are drawn to me are young black men. Yeah. Right? I've changed my mind. Oh, it's food. either Venus or Serena Williams. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. I'd go with them because again they've moved away from sport and they've got successful businesses outside of where you would expect to see them mm -hmm. and their journey and their inspiration is is crazy isn't Real. it staggering so um i've squeezed another on the table so we need to fine expand the i'll get rid of will the table settings if that's okay done Listen, thank you so much for coming today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and getting to know you a bit better. And um, I think the, the work you do with the, the foundation is tremendous. Super inspiring to me. And I, I really mean that. Um, those aren't just words. 
and it, it kind of reminds me of my obligation to to give back when you know once I've once I've run my course no sort of pun intended there and um, you're a credit to the city you gave me an award as well well your foundation on behalf of the city. yeah on behalf of the city gave me the um, inducted me into the Manchester Hall of Fame and that was um, a massive massive honor for me um, I would I'd probably say the greatest honor I've had in my life because of as I said to you, you know what the city means to me so I want to thank you for that as well and thank you for your time today it means uh, means a lot to me for you to be here it's been a pleasure thank you thank you Diane thanks you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.